Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Today, Janelle and I are with Reverend Josh Carney, talking about the divine intellect drift, unlocking the mysteries of religious thought in a post-Christian world or religious epistemology in a post-Christian culture. Josh Carney is the chief of staff for Waco Family Medicines Foundation. Before that, Josh pastored University Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. He has a Master's of Divinity from Truett Seminary. During his 15-year tenure, these are his words, attendance declined, but morale uh, was lifted. And that, those are my words. And he hasn't written any books, but he has said a lot of great things. So you can actually go back on the UBC website podcast and you can listen to Josh. He's got, uh, I think, a lot of great words for not just his community back in the day, but for all of us across the globe. So good to have you, Josh. Appreciate your time. And thank you for coming to to the Waco community uh, several weeks back. Yeah, well, uh, I'm honored to be here and I don't get to use this part of my brain much anymore. So I'm grateful for a chance to talk with friends. Awesome. So we like to to start with uh, our our speakers and our guests just briefly talking about their spiritual, religious pedigree background. Uh, Just basically like you grew up a, B, or C, and now you identify with A, B, or C. Yeah. And uh, there's no wrong or right answer here. Just kind of your, your, the gist of your one minute religious life story. Sure. Uh, my dad was a pastor of a small town, Northern Wisconsin church that I described as charismatic. Um, if that word is unfamiliar, people might think of Assembly of God or Pentecostal, depending on your context. Um, although I should say it wasn't conservative culturally. So my parents drank growing up. Um, you know, we, we had female preachers all the time. Uh, I described the church, though, as a place filled with Flannery O'Connor characters. Um, the church was, you know, 100 people, um, but there was two mills and a Harley plant, Harley Davidson plant in my town, and that was the workforce. Um, so uh, a lot of blue collar, salty earth people. Um, Tomahawk, Wisconsin, still in some sense owns my heart, even though I've been in Texas almost 20 years. So uh, then I went to a Baptist college, Bethel in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, I thought I was going to show all those Baptists what the gifts of the spirit was. Um, it had a, you know, a, a kind of quintessential transformative worldview experience that you have in college. I had a really gifted professor who also doubled as my pastor, Greg Boyd. Um, so I took Christian theology and a few other classes from him. Things like open theism and other, now I can see squarely evangelical debates felt really important to me at the time and were really formative for my view of God. Uh, then went to a Baptist seminary, um, not on purpose, just True, it was part of a Division One institution, and I wanted those research opportunities, and um, it felt reputable at the time. Everybody was coming to Truett. Um, N.T. Wright almost landed at Truett and a few others. But uh, again, it was like, okay, I guess I'm at a Baptist seminary, don't feel Baptist, took the poly class, thought, oh yeah, okay, I guess I'm kind of Baptist, was at a Baptist church. And um, tragically, my second year, the beginning of my second year, October, our pastor died. He was doing a baptism in the the baptismal was improperly grounded, the heater, and he grabbed a microphone and it completed the circuit and he was electrocuted and killed. Um, so I finished my seminary experience for two years. And when I graduated, uh, they asked me to stay and, and consider taking the role as a teaching pastor. So when I said yes, I became Baptist. <laughs> and now 15 years later that I'm not a pastor there, I'm not Baptist anymore. I'm worshiping at a Presbyterian church in town. So that's the blip of summary. Yeah. Cool. Josh, I'm curious. Do you do you have any things in the in the Baptist tradition heritage that you that you actually gleaned over the years? Like I, I call myself, and it's an ongoing thing, and a Baptist Methodicostal. So as I grew up Southern Baptist, I'm not I don't identify with that, but I still there's aspects of the Anabaptist tradition that I identify with. Would you say 15 years in that you gleaned anything? Yeah, you know, I think if not Baptist, certainly the Free Church tradition. I do like autonomy of the local church. Um, it's been interesting navigating. Presbyterian polity, because I think that is sort of at play there too. It's just, there's more governance. Um, but I really, that and uh, soul competency, you know, priesthood believers, sort of the core Baptist ones, I, I, they're in me. Um, you know, thinking back, one of the real formative, helpful books for just opening up my heart was McLaren's Generous Orthodoxy. I don't know if you remember his subtitle was like, blah, blah, blah. And there, he paired a bunch of things, right? Like Arminian Calvinist, just to, to show the both and um, and one of the really formative chapters of that book that gave me a lot of permission was the charismatic contemplative, because that's what I grew up with, but everybody I respected was in this other tradition. And he very gracefully narrated the, the reality that those come from the same instinct, which is an openness to the spirit and an experiential um, pedagogy. So uh, that was that was really a big deal for me. Very cool. Uh, so we are we're today we're going to unpack 
a little bit about how we how we know what we know, how communities and individuals come to define truth, whatever that may be, in this post-Christian world. Uh, and we're going to kind of move backward. I think this this model uh, that you provide, I think you had, you had gotten from somebody else and tweaked it a bit. Um, it's helpful, especially for those who grew up in the church. It's a it's a church model that talks about these four stages of formation, and so we can kind of uh, move within that, and and maybe we'll ask some questions within that. But can you first off just unpack that that model for people of how how individuals come to know whatever truth is to them? Sure. Yeah. So let me uh, give credit where it's due. I got I, I borrowed this from a mentor of mine, Bert Burleson. He's actually the university chaplain at Baylor. Um, and I'm sure it was taken, you know, it evolved from a few people. There's a, who, who's written the famous stages of faith book that could cite all its like nine of them. I can't remember. James Fowler. Fowler. That's it. So I, I don't know if it's a ripoff of Fowler or not, but I certainly want to give, but uh, broadly speaking, the, the tagline I would offer is that you want your children's pastor to be a fundamentalist. You want your youth pastor to be an evangelical. You want your young adult pastor to be a deconstructionist. And then you want your senior adults pastor to be a mystic. And um, people cringe at different pieces of the vocabulary there and understand why, but I'm, I'm asking people just to not think of the stigmas with each of those words, but think of the, the kind of the development that happens in the human mind and psyche. And when I did the presentation, Ryan, you have the notes in front of you. I borrowed from William Perry, who is a education psychologist professor. And he, unbeknownst to me, so I think I said it was nice to have confirmation bias, but proposed something very similar that happens within the life of a a college to graduate student, and I don't, I don't have that language in front of me if you want to repeat it, but all that to say, I think this model is probably uh, indicative of at least vaguely how pedagogy happens within us and, and how epistemic um, certainty develops within us. And so, yeah, that was a very helpful tool for me in my 15 years. I leaned on it a lot, but I, I'm certainly not, um, I'm open to it being imperfect. Yeah, so, so I, if you could, this would be kind of fun. We didn't really get to this when you talked here in Waco, but uh, the stages of formation that you had mentioned here. So we have, again, children's pastor, fundamentalist, youth pastor, evangelical, young adults pastor, deconstructionist, senior adults pastor, mystic, just for those following along. In your own personal story, your own voyage and your journey, and then maybe within your friends around you, because you can't do this thing alone, um, have, have, has this model been helpful for you looking back in hindsight? Um, how personal can you get here and or, or or were these things um missing in your life and then you're like oh this may be helpful for somebody else but how personal was this for you yeah no i think you know like anything uh a label that helps you make sense of your history is an incredibly powerful thing um and so yeah i mean i certainly was taught you know children are concrete thinkers so i was taught the stories without agenda and sort of internalize those. I memorized scripture. I, I got the building blocks, right? So that felt like a fit. And then um, in the charismatic environment, I certainly had a very vibrant worshiping, and I'm, I'm making a mistake here, and meaning just the music, but uh, music worshiping experience and, and was very much taught how to use the affections of the heart to direct um, my emotions towards God. Um, and then, you know, I sat in a classroom my junior year, I remember explicitly learning about Feuerbach and did I get that right? And um, the other so. German, uh, you know, Christian atheist, for lack of a better phrase, who had really compelling reasons to say what they wanted to say, starting with um, Schweitzer all the way through the third moment of the Jesus seminar. And so um, I did the deconstructions thing. And then, of course, the real challenge is to put something back together constructively. And um, that's the, the ongoing task I'm in the middle of as a mystic. Yeah, the, <laughs> the stage of ambiguity, uh, mystery, unknowing, lack of certainty. It's, it's tricky. So you, we're all, actually all three of us here, we're, we're all middle-aged. So here we are, second half of life. Uh, this, is, this is the fun part. This is so it's funny. Like, this is what they, they say that the, the stage in your life where you're supposed to, you're supposed to be at like, the most content, the most happy, the most joyful. And yet I feel from myself and all my friends around me who are in this middle mid stage, the kids are at these like ripe age. If you're a parent, right? Your marriage has been, you know, going on for these many years. And it's, they've said, actually, it's the most difficult stage of your life. And I'm wondering if it's, if it is that because we're all in that mystic senior adult pastor stage of like, I thought I was supposed to have all the answers. And now I'm trying to live in this commitment to that mystery. And that's, that's just easier said than done. So that could be another conversation, though, with uh, we could do some Jungian psychology and less 
want to get into that right now. <laughs> well, maybe the one thing I would say is, um, you know, the, me the mechanics remain the same, I think, in terms of pedagogy. And, and I say that with a, a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 14-year-old, and 16-year-old. Um, but their questions are certainly different than mine, right? So I guess what I mean by that is, um, you know, my kids still go to camp and they come back and I can tell there is something I think holy and sacred about that experience of being away from your folks in a camp environment with other whatever people your age, which is focused on God. And my kids have gone to a camp that wasn't like mine, right? My, mine was the happy, clappy, feel good thing. But I can tell they're coming back with something similar, something powerfully and emotive that's very formative for them. So I think that remains the same. Now, the content of the moral world that they're navigating, of course, is so much different. Um, so my kids, it's very important for them to be at an open and affirming church, which something like that wasn't even close to be on my radar. Um, but I think what I was going to say is, you know, being in this phase of life, I feel because the, the mysticism demands, I think, a certain epistemic humility and open-heartedness, I feel less prepared to offer my children answers um, than I think my parents were. And, you know, I think most of your, your listening base is going to celebrate that and clap, but there is kind of a grief there. Like, I, I wish I could offer my children something more concrete because I, I still think there are probably some really good answers out there. I just haven't gotten comfortable enough with them to, to assign certainty to them and, and brand them with those. Yeah, I, I, uh, I resonate completely 100%. I, I was just sharing with you earlier before we were recording about uh, my daughter, Anna, at six, but understanding that they're going to have have these kind of questions that, that they need a certainty a, a bit like they and we're supposed to be the authoritative figures in their life and it, it would be nice to say oh I know the answer to this um, but then to flip flip it with a question back on them I, I think they're going to survive I think, I think they'll be okay but I think maybe you and I were raised in Janelle you I would I would assume you were too where we had to have the answers down and mm -hmm. I, I've, I've most recently come to a place where I I'm starting to mourn and I, I just started giving myself permission more in the person that I thought I was supposed to be. And because I, I drift, speaking of drift, I drifted for the past, probably the past 10 years. But if I go back further, I, the stuff that I was reading even 20 years ago, um, give people giving me the permission to do that. But along the way, you're like, Oh, like I, this is, this is not the way it was supposed to be. But I think having, having this model that you provided that Burleson's provided here, it's, it's helpful. I know that people who were at the pub a few weeks back when they when they heard this, it was almost not, well. I, I'll say the word earth shattering in a lot of ways. It allowed them to breathe, giving themselves mercy and grace, and not guilt and shame. So, I appreciate this. Janelle, were you going to comment on something? Well, I, I'm a little curious, um, especially with the the spread of ages you have for children. Do you feel like they're facing? almost getting into that deconstructionist phase a little earlier now than say we did. Um, Cause I just, I, kids are exposed to so much more. They're, they're, they're seeing more, they're interacting with a larger audience than I ever did. Um, and so are they, do you think some of those uh, boundaries between the categories might be shifting a little? Um. Maybe, and this is going to sound arrogant because I think the relationship with children and parents is probably the same under every generation. I do feel like, you know, I just talked about mourning not being able to offer my children something concrete. I do feel like we're starting to reap some of the fruit of that open-heartedness and the, the being okay with the lack of certainty. Um, so something I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, what happens if you don't have anything to react against in the first place? Like if you didn't have the bad experience, right? Um, so like my, and some of it's just personality. Like my oldest is an Enneagram nine. He's very docile by nature. He's leads with humility. He lives with humility. So he just isn't an angry guy. Um, now I will say, um, and, and I, this might piss off some of your fan base. I, up until probably a year and a half ago was pro-life. Um, obviously very with a ton of humility and acknowledging that, my pro-life platform offered very little to nothing for real choices for people. So, you know, probably functionally it was pro-choice, but um, after the, the, this, the first decision came out with the Supreme court, my wife and I had a pretty hearty, I wouldn't call it a fight. Um, but it was, uh, it was like, 
I, I eventually, in the, I guess the good news, at the, at the end of the thing, I said, well, I don't have a, I can't existentially have the same dog in this fight that you do. So I more or less adopted my wife's position because I want to honor her and I love her. And I think she gets to speak for women in a way that I can't. But um, my oldest daughter was very uh, feisty and listening to us. And um, so that, you know, that was the first time I got to a real taste of, oh, wow, my children and I might have a substantial difference in our worldview. And um, I think that that was handled okay, but I definitely felt like the irrelevant old, um, you know, geezer dad. Um, so, yeah. you know, I'm thankful for that experience. And I don't know if I answered your question, Janelle, but I think the answer is it's different with each of them because of the birth order and personality yeah. and gender. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was I was the little type A well, Enneagram one from the time I was probably nine. So I okay. stayed in that that evangelical. I have all the answers space for way too long. Um, so it's just in, and I see that in my niece. You know, I'm like, it, are we going to be able to keep her out of that all the way <laughs> so she right. has a little flexibility? But um, yeah, it's interesting how kids process all of that. Well, and. If I can go on a tangent for a second, uh, again, yeah. I said I was thinking about what if we don't have something to react against? So yeah. two case in point, um, I have a good friend who is friend. So it was, um, it's this Minnesota religious circle I came from. She was a doctor in Haiti for years and years and years and there because of her faith conviction. And then when the earthquake in 11 happened, you know, just blew her world apart. And I saw her at a wedding like two or three years later and she was an atheist. And she said, I just can't after what I've seen believe. And then um, the reason I know that is because actually Saturday, I was with a friend who does, he's a professor at TCU and does medical humanities. So he thinks about a lot of the same things, but he um, was talking about Paul Farmer, who you guys would probably know, the, the doctor who set up stuff in Rwanda and Haiti and whatnot. But he actually is, a, uh, he's deceased now, but was, became a pretty devout Roman Catholic. Um, and it was because of the work he saw people doing in Haiti who were people of faith. Now, the reason I noted that was here's you have two people in the exact same environment who the experience turned them the opposite way. And the only difference yeah. I can make is um, she had something to be pissed at as a framework to start with, and he didn't. And I wonder how much that impacts us. Yeah. Because, and if I can get ahead of myself, um, uh, the, the, one of the most impactful, I think, honest, sociological theological truths that is at work in human psyche is what Gerard has proposed in the scapegoating stuff and I think that affects so much of the way that we form belief and so I, I think the algebra kind of does itself there where it's you know if you have something to be pissed at you have something to blame emotionally and then you evolve in another direction but if you don't it goes the other way so I don't know that's what I'm thinking about these days yeah that's interesting um, so maybe you can talk with us a little bit as we move towards that or integrate some of that Gerard in what we're doing here um, with William Perry's scheme and kind of those four phases of development. Do you want to walk us through that a little bit and, and just talk about how that um, helps us understand and navigate complex social and ethical issues? Yeah, I'd be glad to, but I'll be honest, I'm not as familiar with Perry's work. Can one of you just read that brief paragraph yep. that describes the four words and movements he makes? Yeah, so we have the first stage that is typically discussed is dualism. Dualism is the belief that every problem is solvable, that students are to learn the right answers, and that one must obey authorities. The second so the stage yeah, is the multiplicity Multiplicity is that there are two types of problems, solvable and problems that the answer is not known yet. In addition, in this stage, students put trust in their own inner voice. Uh, relativism is the third stage. During this stage, all solutions to problems must have reasons and must be viewed with a specific context. The basis for this stage is that every issue must be evaluated because everything is contextual. And lastly, commitment is the stage where there is an acceptance of uncertainty as part of life. During this stage, students use the combination of personal experience and evidence learned from outside sources to arrive at conclusions. So we have dualism to multiplicity, relativism, and then commitment. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, that was an interesting question you posed about how to integrate Gerard with the development. Um, and I've not explicitly thought about this before, but I think um, you know, maybe the gift that Gerard gives us in terms of explanatory power is he, um, 
can make sense of us why we move from any phase to the next phase. And that is because at some point, either our affections, our intellect, or something feels deficient. And so uh, we need to, to be able to other the thing, even within us, to move to that next thing within us. And if people aren't familiar with Rene Girard, so he's a French, either philosopher or sociologist, I remember, who I don't even think was Christian, but came up with mimetic theory. And I'm going to way dumb it down, and this is unfair. Isn't that how he he became a Christian by writing by sorry reading Christian as like literature, like the Bible, and like oh, but I mean, well, it could be. I don't. Yeah. I I'm not, not as familiar with his biography. I just know you know basically what he does is the the course of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures leads to the Jesus moment where humanity um, makes Jesus the ultimate scapegoat of its own um, angst, and um, you know that is course what we would call a subjective view of atonement and wouldn't fly well in most churches but um if you at least have capacity to do both and i think it's certainly true uh, not just in that moment but in the human psyche so that's what i mean by you know this is that that movement within us with each of our rejection of our own religious suppositions at some point is that 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 belief in us becomes the scapegoat and of course that's a reference to that levitical imagery of the was it the goat of azazel or whatever the goat you send out into the desert Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think again, Janelle, thanks for that, that question. I think I'll keep thinking about that and try and integrate those two notions. Yeah. It, I know that Gerard is really getting wrestled with a lot recently, especially in open and relational theology spaces. So yeah. uh, there may be a lot of fruit there. Um, I think, a, I think a lot of people just want to get away from the traditional atonement views that have uh, kind of, uh, saturated most churches, right? The last yeah a thousand years yeah, i know tony but... jones 15 10 years ago had written a brief book on atonement using gerard and I actually never got around to reading it but it reminds me to put it on my list so but so but that mimetic desire is it's really interesting especially when you look at like the human psyche how we basically going back to that Jungian reference earlier like there's a collective unconscious right we're not even aware of these desires that we have but we but then we get if we take a step back and we look at the crowd and community around us, we can we can see that we just can't see it in ourselves until right. we're out of it. Uh, right. So I, I'm also I'm, I'm interested too. Well, a couple of things that you that you had said on this is that like if you don't have anything to to reject or to deconstruct or and whatnot, um, I think about just basic human needs, and this is maybe just a Western thing. And so we're obviously speaking to a West in a Western context because. You know, at one point, right, in society, I'm sure, like, if you, it, it was all about, like, well, I mean, do I have shelter? Right? Am I safe? Do I have food? Like, these hierarchy of needs. But do you think we just, we create these existential needs and we have to have a crisis because the basic needs are met? I, I got food. I, you know, I, I have shelter. Yeah, I, I mean, I got that's interesting. By the way, for listeners, this thing I did at the pub two weeks ago, this was, or whatever it was. Uh, this is complete uh, proposal. I'm still in thought on all this. So, um, yeah, you know what I thought of when you asked that question is how uh, how much we need conflict for narrative to work. Um, and I think as we try and make sense of our own lives, um, you know, if everything's easy, um, we become complacent. Um, now, of course, I don't wish hardship on anybody, but I can testify from my own experience that you know the only real meaning periods of growth in my life came from pain yeah um, and so you know roar has this great quote where he says um, people only change through pain in their prayer and most people are too dumb to pray so um and i kind of think he's right that's good that, um pain is the great you know well and lewis right lewis said pain is god's megaphone um so oh. i hate that that's reality and i'm not a calvinist but damn it that seems to be true in my life mm-hmm yeah, this may go nowhere, but I'll explore it anyway. Like, so I guess I think I push back a little from that language having come through my journey because I, I don't feel like a loving God would make us suffer. And and that's yeah. not what you're implying. But, I, you know, I wonder if there there's crisis moments that help us to move, but also... I guess I would say like when we moved to Denver, we left our tradition in that same time. We we kind of thought maybe we would be able to stay Nazarene as we moved out here, but that proved not to be true. And so there was this big transition in life and, and there has been a lot of pain from it. But 
I remember in the first few years we were here, especially there was just, there was so much openness and freedom in being in a new place, being um, in a new worldview. Honestly, I think coming out West is very different from being in the Midwest. Where and so we were in Kansas city. Okay. And so I'm just like, like exploring that there's, there's also growth and change and movement when life gives us those moments of, of like relaxing or freedom. I, I think we, we can get to a place where that does become complacent again. Um, but I know that having come out of that really strict evangelical fundamentalist stuff, having space to like breathe and think and play was really transformative and I, I, I guess it's just, I, I just want to talk about it different because I hate, I hate thinking about a God that only hurts us to make us change or allows yeah. us to be hurt because that when you, you mix that with trauma language and abuse, sure. like that becomes really unhealthy to me. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if there's another way to say it for people that, you know, you can still transform without having your life destroyed you can still transform um when things shift but aren't necessarily a disaster i don't know i don't know if that yeah. makes any sense no I'm, I'm glad you said all that um because you know i certainly as a pastor there were moments where I, I could never tell somebody to get out of a relationship in good conscience but i sure as hell came pretty close to telling people you need to get divorced um, cause they were in abusive relationships and uh, like that just kind of, that's not going to be redemptive. I think, um, this is the great theological reality slash semantic trick of Romans eight twenty eight. right? God, it's the difference between does God cause all things or God uses all things to work together for good. I mean, there's a, yeah. just a one word, but it's such a different world. Right. Um, and I think I still subscribe to the belief that God uses things and that God doesn't cause things. So, um, you know, when I say something like Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone, um, I, I hope I don't mean that God um, caused the pain, but that uh, the gentleness, the tenderness, the, the good attributes of God seem clearer to me. Um, I'm more attentive to those things when I'm in pain. Yeah. Um, and I have some, some clairvoyance and some clarity about uh, who God is. Um, now, uh, I will say, uh, Roar, who I just have mentioned his name a few times now, so obviously he's been formative. When he was on Rob Bell's podcast years ago, they did the thing called the seven, whatever, of the new orthodoxy. And it was like, I lapped it up. I, in fact, I listened to it probably 15 times. I took notes on it. It was just one of those things that hit you at the right time. But he does, in the middle of that, in his thing on everything belongs, say, it's so hard for us to understand, but everything. And he goes after it. He talks about, you know, because People say that and they offer flimsy examples. He talked about children being put in sex traffic. Now, yeah. I just can't go there. I just, there's nowhere on my grid that I can reconcile even permission from God and that being a good God. Um, there's no, to borrow again from Lewis, project where love for the sake of freedom is worth it in that circumstance, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think as I've gotten older and we're in the second half of life, I am more open to this notion that though God does not send me pain, pain may be the most transformative thing in my life. Yeah. Um, now, the nuance you called for, Janelle, is absolutely prudent. And again, if there are folks who are in the midst of abuse right now, I certainly want to be um, loud and clear about the fact that that is not from God. So yeah. I don't know if that answer was sufficient. but No, that was really, I and I did not, you did not come across as saying pain is necessary or caused by God. I just, when I hear those things now, they kind of cause a different reaction yeah. because as I've reason. studied trauma and in and, and the way the church has hurt people especially women mm -hmm. um and god if god is doing that to us that's not that's not a god that I want a relationship well, and, with and let's name that I'm a middle-aged white male who pretty much had everything goes away his whole life and so um certainly would want to yield this perspective of folks yeah. who have been closer to the margin than I have. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for yeah. thanks for exploring that with me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, so, yeah, there's so much that we could probably keep going on with this. Uh, I, I I am curious. So, if there are people who are in this the dualistic stage 
Um, do you think you can go your whole life and just stay? I mean, I mean, how, how many people do we know that just stay in the dualistic? Oh yeah, they, I mean, they might be aware of them. Yeah exists its whole life in the first two stages so does that does that create more pain is it does do we see repression like so you suppress a lot of the obviously the multiplicity of options out there shove it down I mean, shove it and then it manifests in other ways is that i think some people die pretty happy in stage one or two yeah do you really uh, think that well i mean here's the thing about deconstruction right it's so painful and it's so uncomfortable, but I've never met somebody in the middle of phase that says, yeah, I want to go back. Yeah. Right. So even though the myopic kind of um, serenity exists in those earlier stages, one of the things you gain is a sense of that's incomplete. But if you don't know that, you don't know that. Um, and there, there are other ways that have nothing to do with religion in my own life, which I probably, you know, in terms of analog, am in a one or two phase of my own, like I just had reference I made about my, my privileged worldview. Like, I think there's probably things about the world I don't understand because of my privilege. Um, and I am for intense purposes in this sociological reality, a phase one or two person. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't ever wish for deconstruction and, you know, still having not worked out mysticism and have a lot of confusion in some sense, grief, um, even this, but once you're there, you can't go back. You can't ever see the yeah. world the same way again. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I was talking to my wife recently about we've been listening to people's stories in a group that we're a part of, and I I feel like in Janelle, it's very similar to brew theology. Like you you hear people's intro story, like oh heard this one before, heard this one before, um, and then Lauren has this moment of saying I I don't have that same story because she's I wasn't as entrenched in that world as, as y'all were, you know? Um, and she's like, and she looks at me, she said, also it was your life. Like you were, you know, you got, you got started in this tradition and then you went to, and then you had a religious background and then a degree and then another degree and then you worked in it. So I was like, I guess there is more, a little bit more intensity, probably even the three of us right now than yeah. it would be in other people. Um, right. she grew up in well, a Christian world, my, but. My point about Paul Farmer is it's probably at work in your life, wife too, she, she has less to reject. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she's not as angsty. I'm, I'm, be, I'm, I'm now. I've moved beyond the angstiness. Um, I, although, I probably you could probably get me going. Probably, I'm sure there's a few buttons you could push. Sure. <laughs> uh, okay. I got a question for the two of you, as the yeah. angsty folks. So, and again, I was male, and I'm white. I, I, you know, and, and maybe it's because it was my dad. I certainly have rejected much of the theology I grew up with but I still deeply trusted my dad as somebody who knew and loved God. And so one of the other things McLaren says that I really believe in is um, we need to be generous to the previous versions of ourselves yes. and understand that they're very much part of who we are today. So I'm just wondering for the two of you who would identify as, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps angsty, are there pieces of any of that past that you think is still valuable and that you hang on to? Yes. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I and so I, I have these moments where I yeah, you're like the, if this person wasn't in your family, like would you hang out with them? Would you have a beer, coffee with them? And a lot of times we would say probably not. And then it get, begins to then make you wonder, huh? So I, I put people in a box. I've created this. So I'm I, I've tried to move more as this the second half of life as you have too of of doing that transcending and including and realizing like okay, this is my former self. And I, I can identify with my former self knowing um, also if I, if I never was to have moved beyond these phases, I got to have grace for that person, regardless if this person deconstructs, uh, dives into relativism, finds some mystic new self, because I have people in my own family that I love dearly and I could sit down and have meaningful conversations with. And so do they love, uh, do they love well? Like, uh, do they have causes that are dear to their heart? Do they have a common ground that I have? And I would say, yes, they do. And I could start listing all the different causes, whether it's uh, clean water in you know, uh, in countries or uh, orphans or sex trafficking or I think the list goes on of like we can find things that we could say yes these are things that are good news gospel that are God's kingdom or kingdom however whatever language you want to use. Um, now we may disagree on other issues like whether same sex marriage or inclusion or atonement theories, but or even who we voted for in the last election, which I think is silly because I'm like well you know. <laughs> 
if I look back at people that I've voted for throughout my life, like I would be judging this person and that person and this person. So um, yes, um, the, the people that, that are de- still very dear to me, um, they've created me. Uh, and, and so I, I, uh, if I don't have grace and mercy for that, um, then I should judge myself more, more harshly, you know? Um, so I, I have, I have more of an appreciation now than I probably did 10 years ago. And I think a lot of that was my oldest is going to be 11 this year. So yep. being a father has given me a, a bigger heart for, it's also given me an interfaith heart. So like, I'm now like, oh yeah, evangelicals and Muslims and Buddhists and agnostics. Like I'm like, I've got, I've got a pretty big tent now. So. Well, that's the thing is I'm glad you, and Janelle, I want to hear your answer after this, but um, I'm glad you said Muslim and evangelical, because I think the thing that is is sort of missing the point is a lot of my left-leaning friends, which is a a world I exist in. I, I don't think that there's an honesty about the nature of fundamentalism on the left and the boundary drawing that's happening there. And so, you know, if we're going to take ourselves seriously, you got to put as much work into loving the evangelical as you do the Muslim. Um, because one of those is fashionable for the liberal, one's not. So anyways, rabbit trail, Janelle. It's a good rabbit trail. Yeah, I'm, um, and Ryan helps me be nicer to myself. So I just want to notate that. he's He's been important in speaking into this. I, I really dislike my old self. Um, once uh enneagram one always an enneagram one (laughs) (laughs) yeah um it's not her fault but i was a apologetics queen and i i rejected a lot of people and i rejected a lot of ideas Mm -hmm. and i thought i had all the answers and my church reinforced that and and wanted me to be in that place and um that's just not a very fun way to live um I think at the time I was doing the best I could with the knowledge I had I was trying to be obedient I was trying to be the best minister I could be as a minister in training um but it's you know especially seeing the way that evangelicals are behaving now and knowing that I was a part of that and and questioning, like, if we hadn't moved when we did, would I have gone along with that stuff, w- with what's happened in the last 10 years? Because I'm not sure. Uh, sure. I think there's a world where I could have gone along with a lot of that, and that makes me really sad. And um, what do I, I do value my Wesleyan heritage and my free, the the free will elements of that and thinking about the way we move through the world. Um, I, I know she you grew up Methodist, uh, Nazarene. Oh, that's right. And um, I, I think that I have. I think the Wesleyan quadrilateral has probably influenced me more than I gave it. You know, um, gave it credit for uh, because I do use multiple things to inform my faith. You know, and I mm-hmm. always have. And that kind of got me in bad places sometimes with people. But um, overall, I mean, I think I think I've overcome a lot of that, and I, I try to look back and give her more grace. Um, it just, well, honestly, I have a lot of grief and sadness about how I spent thirty plus years of my life living that way, sure. and I just so wish that I could have opened up sooner. So I don't mean to turn this into a therapy session, but. And I'm sure you thought about this. Have you forgiven that version of yourself? Have you forgiven her? Most of the time, most of the time. And I, and as I'm learning more stuff about myself recently, um, there's some new light that's been shed on that. And so I think it's getting easier to give her some grace. Um, I also, the other thing that's been really healing for me, which may sound out of left field, and but our listeners know is um, my husband helped with some DEI training when he first worked at his job here and mm-hmm. and reading unconscious bias stuff really helped me oh, heal because especially like I knew that there was gender discrimination but it was not anything I ever thought about in the context of the church and realizing that some of what was going on in my process towards ordination was actually not my fault mm-hmm. was really really helpful to like be able to say like yeah that's 
way beyond anything you were doing. It's it's because you were a woman. Um, and I think what's in, you know, what's been interesting about that is I came from a, a tradition that says that we ordain women from our very beginning, but that does not mean that we treat you equally. And so like that, that was a big shift for me was realizing that there's still politics and bias and all of that stuff. And I just didn't know that before. So learning about that really, really has helped me have a little more kindness towards that. Well, thank you for your candid response. Yeah. All right. Uh, so how much time do we have? Because I want I do want to get into this internal, external. It's yeah, 9.50. That, that is an important piece to, to end on, land on, possibly. Um, so okay. I thought a great segue, though, is Janelle, you mentioned the quadrilateral. So yeah. um, absolutely, uh, you know, I think Wesley should get more credit as an important theologian in, in history. But um, so for listeners, I'm assuming you're pretty sophisticated, but the proposal by Wesley was that we um, we have scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, um, and those four at play in how we arrive at knowledge as, as Christians. Um, and the point I made in my talk is Rohr, I think, collapses reason into tradition. So he talks about experience and scripture, and then either tradition or reason but what he says is as opposed to a quadrilateral where i think even wesley championed scripture above everything else i'm not right. sure about that yeah but, yeah but, our um, theologians talk about it as a stool with three legs okay so scriptures on the top and the other three hold it up so what Rohr says and he's absolutely right about is that it's a tricycle or whatever you know and um the back wheels are scripture and tradition and the front wheel is really experienced for all of us mm -hmm. and i promise you that's true for even the fundamental fundamentalists um and it took me a while to real, realize that what we all do hermeneutically but we all do it so um since this is all in service of a rel religious epistemology the question i've been asking is how do we get to that point where we're honest about the fact that we really move from an outer authority i.e scripture to an inner authority which is what we really believe and how we arrive there, and, and certainly what we believe is informed by scripture. But um, th my big shift came when our church became affirming and leading through that process. So I think for a lot of people, they're like, well, I know what the Bible says, but, um, you know, I, I got friends that are, are gay. And of course, that was true of me for 10 years, but I really, really, because of my robust Protestant, you know, upbringing was like no i have to get permission from scripture to make this move and i think i really did i, I read yeah. um what's his name uh, eugene rogers book sexuality and christian body um i read letter to my congregation by i can't remember is a vineyard pastor just a lot of great literature out there but i had to make peace with what i thought was a responsible reading of romans 1 and was it leviticus 18 and um another really formative piece even uh it's conservative but richard um Hayes's contribution in the moral vision of the New Testament was incredibly instructive and helpful for me. Um, I had to do all that work. And um, eventually I was able, Rogers was very instrumental in getting me there. But once I did that, I'm like, okay, look what I just did with the scripture and the hermeneutic. I just gave myself permission to have. Now, if I'm honest, I could use scripture to argue for slavery and I could use scripture to argue against women in the church. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, and it's not that just that it was a slippery slope of scripture, but I'm just like, wait a minute, nobody is reading scripture, honestly, anymore. And it took me making that leap and giving myself permission, which is really just a different way to say, recognizing what I already do, which is give my inner authority the largest voice in the way I do hermeneutics. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know if you guys have a response to that. That's just how I understand evolving through that. I think getting people to even understand that, they, that there's an inner and an external authority that are always at tension and how you come to a syn synthesis of a with your community, right, and your tradition, uh, it's way more complex than you know than well the Bible says it. I believe it. This is truth, and you're like, well, that's because we were who were we talking to, Janelle, a couple of years ago, Robert. Oh, what's his last name? Nash, and he said that context is as important, if not more important, than text. You know, he's mm -hmm. a Baptist preacher. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, um, but most most well, he, he it's funny because like you know what. That's that's the deep dive into like pluralism of like the world that you live in. And then you start, if you look at the Bible as its own pluralistic sort of worldview and, and throughout time, you can see, well, Paul's doing the same thing, right? 
Um, Jesus was actually doing similar things in his time as well, you know, right before Paul. But we don't like to admit that. Well, and I think one of the real tensions culturally right now is that um, it's one thing to make the leap and say that morals are culturally constructed, which they absolutely are, right? But I think the other thing is we're not honest about, and this is why we're having such a hard time culturally, is that uh, the nature of being offended is also a construct. And I realize that in saying that, that could have a sense of trying to delegitimize a whole bunch of things. But I don't mean to do that. I just mean to say, we need to also be honest about what we decide is or isn't offensive. Um, because that's also a, a construct. Yeah, Everything's offensive these days. <laughs> well, and I think well, there's a there's a lack of honesty there about, so going back to fund, like fundamentalism, you think that your authority is the Bible, that it's external, because right. I'm obedient to what the Bible says. But the internal thing that's happening is there is that you're just accepting what you're being told the Bible says, and then taking that as the, um, let's go with rule of how to live. And so mm -hmm. you just move forward in that reality and that wrestling with it really, I think, especially in some personality types gets completely eliminated. Oh, well, of course my authority is the Bible. I don't, I would never trust my own voice. I mean, how many of us got that in youth group that we're not to trust our own thoughts. We're not to trust our emotions. They're they're, they will make you go a different direction. Um, you know, we, we're very much enculturated with this idea that we need that external authority because we're just, we're created evil and there's no way to, to trust what we think. And until that's a really powerful thing to like, keep you in that box. And until you can stretch out of that and say, no, maybe some of my questions are legitimate, or maybe some of my thoughts come from something that's that's meaningful until you can let yourself go down that path it's real easy to be in that place of just like well this is what the bible says right. and and it was and definitely easier <laughs> i'll give them right. that well and to unpack what i was saying when i said even the fundamentalist has uh, an external or an internal authority is that internal authority in that case that driving hermeneutic is their sense of safety that's yeah, the yeah. that's the thing that's gripping them and holding them and it is nice yep. it is nice <laughs> it's just yeah, not a great way to move through the world but the, the the safety of belonging to your tribe would probably be the one of the most important things for i'd say all of us in our absolutely our, I, I look back at my life and like it's it's very sad when you lose your community uh, that's why people that's why people don't change right and that's at work in the three of us here right now too right there's a camaraderie and a, a sense of perichoresis to borrow a Trinitarian term of we understand each other and that feels good and safe. Yeah. And if, I, if we would have just uh, shut our mouths, we could have been climbing up a very large evangelical ladder to success, living your That's best right. life now. That's right. <laughs> hey, that, there's, there's a price tag for my fidelity. So <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, there is. Okay. So, uh, I guess to, to end this, so you you have referred to First Thessalonians, Paul's words, or whoever wrote this, five five twenty one, test everything and hold on to the good. And so, uh, how would you want to elaborate in in our time together for those who are still unpacking these different levels in their own life, or in hindsight, or within their community, based on? Um, I would say that's like your your, your thesis take home, at least that I took home when you were talking. Yeah. Um... Uh, well, first of all, one Thessalonians is one of the undisputed Pauline letters, just for the record. So we can stand, we can, we can uh, stroke our sense of inner rightness on that one. Um, yeah, I think that was an incredibly meaningful verse. It was actually a college professor, Roger Olson, used that a lot. And um, I really internalized that and that's been helpful for me. Um, and I think it's because inherent in that verse is a sense of not being threatened, right? And that's got to be the healthiest way to consider a, a new concept is to not be threatened by it. Um, you know, what I would say to folks who are navigating this that haven't given up altogether and, and have some sense of anxiety is um, one of the real liberating things when I was doing that discerning work about um, same-sex marriage was, you know, you think back to like Acts and, and Peter and the, the vision he has with Cornelius and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and Paul on Mars Hill. I mean, these are people pioneering and overturning a tradition that was so important to them and that explicitly 
prescribed not doing theologically what they were doing theologically. And, and, and let's be honest, the, uh, a much stronger fundamentalism than we have. In Torah, they all memorized it, right? I mean, this was in their blood and their body and invaded every square inch of their life in a way that, you know, just you don't see in Christianity today. And they did that. They made those moves. And, um, you know, I remember I was listening to Rob Bell one day and it was just, you know, he said the simplest thing, but it was the light bulb went off. He just said, what's the fruit look like? And I think that, and, and maybe this goes back to where I began as a kid in a charismatic church where I really was, all my theological trajectory was led with my pneumatology, right? And so I've always been able to have a spirit of openness about things. And, but I just really believe that um, God is into movement and history and, and doing new things within us and it's new wineskins and it's always going to be that way. One of the other really powerful moments of formation I had is I was listening to Gene Robinson, the, I don't know if you remember he's still alive or not, but he's the Episcopalian Bishop who was, I think the first openly yep. gay Bishop. And um, he was talking, I think to Terry Gross and Fresh Air about this. And he pointed to the, of all things, priestly prayer of Jesus in John 14 through 17. And when Jesus is talking about, I need to leave, so the helper comes, he says that Jesus says, and there are many more things that I need to teach you that I can't, but the spirit will lead you into all truth. And that is such a liberating notion. And John, by the way, is the same gospel at the end in chapter 21, which is probably an, uh, an epilogue, who says, and all the works of Jesus that happened couldn't be filled up here. There's just so much to the life of faith that the Bible admits that we don't even get to. Yeah. And so um, I just encourage people to be explorers. And to trust that the spirit is active and speaking to us and that, that discerning internal authority can be fruitful. And we have tools like community and scripture to help put that in check. But we can continue to do this meaningful work of, of becoming whole and healthy people. I dig it. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for your time and your wisdom. Well, this yeah, was please. so much fun for me. And Janelle, I'm glad I've gotten meet, to meet you. you appreciate the work y'all are doing and that there's a real care for people to engage faith meaningfully of a variety of ways. So. Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, can, can people find you? Are you on Instagram or Twitter? Are you? Are you? You got any other? I am on both, there? but I'm so lazy. I mean, social media just is. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm most active on Instagram, but I don't do anything related to any of this. I post pictures of my family and write about stuff. And so, the, I'll take the, your friend request on Facebook. But the the Waco Bishop should write more. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see. All Thanks, right, friends. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. So if you like what you heard, share it on the interwebs. Go to iTunes, rate it, review it. Five star, five plus star. If there's more than five stars, give it a six, seven, eight, whatever you got to do. And the only way people even know about this is through things like iTunes. I know it's the giant out there. People, so they want to rage against iTunes. They want to go, make, hey, we're on Podbean as well. Pocket Cast, Google Play. I don't know what else we're on. I think I think I found us on things oh, I didn't know. I didn't even know we were on. But share with your friends. We are at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram. Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. And we will talk to you soon. Peace. Cool. Cheers. <laughs>